We're in Acts chapter 5, and it really fits well with what we've been going through, uh, both in our covenant and then with our mission statement, our theme verse. And uh, so we get to look at a narrative and see what this looks like and how you navigate the waters of suffering and persecution with delight. And those two things sound uh, like a bit of a dichotomy, don't they? Suffering, persecution, and delight. And yet they go together here. So we'll, we'll look at these together. Young William Wilberforce, you may recognize that name, who fought against slavery in England, was very discouraged one night in the late 1790s. He had had another defeat in his 10-year battle against slavery. Of course, he was trying to do it through Parliament, and time after time again, his efforts were shot down. Wilberforce was a believer. So he sat down that evening, opened his Bible, tired, frustrated, unsure what to do, wondering, is God in this? And as he opened it up, a small piece of paper fell out. He picked it up off the floor, and it was a letter from the late John Wesley. He read it again, and these words brought comfort to his mind. Let me read it to you. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing slavery, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature unless God has raised you up for this very thing. Otherwise, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go in the name of God and in the power of His might. Now, I'll promise you that little letter that he revisited put wind in his sails. But even more than that, it helped knowing that John Wesley had gone through a lot of discouragement as well, a lot of opposition as well. Let me read to you from John's diary regarding opposition. Sunday morning, May 5th, preached at St. Anne's Church, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., same day, preached at St. John's Church. The deacon said, get out and stay out. One week later, May 12th, Sunday morning, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back. <laughs> that evening, preached at St. George's Church. Kicked out again. One week later, Sunday morning, preached at St. Another's Church. <laughs> The deacons called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. <laughs> P.M., same night, preached on the street, kicked off the street. The next week, Sunday morning, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the services. Sunday a.m., the following week, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday evening, same day, preached in a pasture, 
10,000 people came to hear me. What is it like for a Christian to respond to persecution, to suffering, and yet rejoice, and yet suffer? He's either mad or it's a mindset. It's a mindset that understands God's sovereignty and His goodness. And as we revisit the book of Acts, that's what we see over and over and over again. Christ is building His church, and the gates of Hades are not prevailing against it. And He's building it through His Word and His people. And there is opposition. And Satan is alive and well. We're just in chapter 5, and if you know the book of Acts, you know we've already seen two waves of persecution against this fledgling church. The first one was hostility from the outside, much like this text here. The Sanhedrin gathered them together, arrested them, and said, By whose authority do you teach these things? The church responded in prayer. And God gave divine enablement. And the church flourished. The second time, Satan switched his M.O. and persecution came from within. Peter rose to the occasion. He called it squarely what it was. And the purity of the church was protected. And the church was unified and multiplied. Now we come to a third wave. This one also from the outside. Look at the verse that sets it up. Chapter 5, verse 16. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. There's a lot of excitement. I want you to write down three points as we walk through this text. Number one, verses 17 through 26. Stand and deliver. Stand and deliver. Verses 17, uh, sorry, verses 27 through 32. Stand in obedience. Stand in obedience. And our third point, 33 through verse 42, suffer and rejoice. The title of our sermon is obeying God rather than men. And I cannot think of a more appropriate text right now, especially given all of this talk about Romans 13. Obeying the government, obeying those who are above you, which is absolutely true. But we also know that that governmental authority by men has limits. Amen? And it stops where it contradicts God's Word. And that's what we will see today. So let's dive right in. Stand and deliver. You get the feeling that Luke is recounting the same story from chapter 4. Like, hey Luke, uh, you're kind of preaching the same sermon here. It sounds awfully familiar. Well, the first time it was Peter and John, but this time it appears to be a group of the apostles. And like in chapter 4, the Sanhedrin is angry. They are hot. Look back with me at chapter 4, verse 2, and I want to show you some parallels here. Chapter 4, verse 2, the Sanhedrin, which is sort of uh, Congress, 
It's the ruling authority, the ruling body. Verse 2, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people, it's talking about the apostles, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Keep that in mind. Teaching and proclamation, the name of Jesus and resurrection from the dead. Now look at chapter 5. I want you to notice something. Verses 17 through 26. Look at these same themes. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with his associates. That is a sect of the Sadducees. Circle that. We're going to come back to Sadducees. And they were filled with jealousy. Sanhedrin rises up emotionally angry. They go from being disturbed to being jealous. Jealous of, of, of who? Ragtag group of apostles who followed a Jewish carpenter who's now dead? So they think. Now look at verse 20. In comparison to that jealousy and the actions that were taken there, Look what we hear as directives from the angels and what they do. Go, verse 20, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of life. Verse 21, upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and they began to teach. Verse 25, but someone came and reported to them, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 28, saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in his name. I don't have to be a genius in hermeneutics to realize that this first section has a whole lot to do with a group of those who are in power getting really, really upset and angry against these men who are standing and teaching. Standing and teaching. Standing and teaching is what really has their shawls in a knot, if we could say that. They are wound tight. They are upset. They are disturbed. No, more than that. Chapter 4 says they were disturbed. Now they're jealous. What is jealousy? Jealousy is feeling resentment because of someone else's advantage, particularly a rival. That person has a leg up on me. That person's getting more exposure than me. That person is advancing faster, has more power, has something I don't. It's a feeling of resentment because of the apostles' advantage. What is the advantage that the apostles have right now? They're standing and they're teaching. Well, no one's stopping the Sanhedrin from doing that. The Sadducees, well, they teach all the time. Ah, but there's a difference, isn't there? How did Christ teach? Unlike the Pharisees, he taught as one having, what? Authority, and not as the scribes. He stood upon the Scriptures. He taught as one who stood upon the truth. Conversely, the Sadducees, they're not as religious as they come across. They're actually more of a political party, more than a religious one. They were willing to capitulate on their values in order to retain power from Rome. And these ragtag teachers, these apostles, are frankly jeopardizing their positions. Why? 
What are the apostles preaching and teaching? Jesus Christ, resurrection of the dead. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't bode well for a group of people who just killed Jesus Christ and don't like hearing that He rose from the dead. Are Are you starting to see the picture here? Well, they got to deal with these teachers. And so they arrest them. They throw them in the city clink, the public jail. But this time, God supernaturally intervenes. Look at verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. Now, the text doesn't specifically say all that happened. Clearly, it was supernatural. We know from verse 23 that the jail was locked and the sentries were at their post. So somehow the angel got them out of there without notice, and yet the angels were were clearly visible to the apostles. But in the midst of this miracle, there's something really funny going on here. You get the sense that when we meet Dr. Luke one day, we're going to find out that this physician had a sense of humor. Remember I said we're going to come back to the Sadducees? Well, what do we know about the Sadducees? When I was a kid, they taught us to say, remember the Sadducees are sad, you see. Why? Well, there's several things they didn't believe in. One was the resurrection. The other one was a literal Messiah. And the other one was angels. Dr. Luke is writing here about how angels free men who are preaching about a literal Messiah who rose from the dead. I mean, it doesn't get more ironic than this. Well, look at the actual instructions from the angels in verse 20. They don't make suggestions. They tell the apostles, go, stand, and speak. Don't sit down and do Socratic teaching. Don't sit down and ask questions. You go, you take your place in the temple, and you preach the Word of God. You preach Jesus Christ is Lord and has risen from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be thinking, um, yeah, Angel, I know you were given orders, but there's some things that have happened in the last couple of days. This is not going over real well for us. Uh, We kind of got arrested. I've got a record now. Um, These guys don't like us. Uh, I think if we go back to the same place, they'll probably catch us again. They don't respond that way at all, do they? Verse 21, upon hearing this, literally upon hearing, they entered the temple about daybreak. They didn't even wait till mid-morning. And they began to teach. I think this is interesting here. When persecution arises because of jealousy, we don't often think about that. But it clearly says it here in the text. And if you think about it, why does persecution against the church, particularly throughout history, especially look in the 20th century, maybe even look now overseas, why does it arise? Because of jealousy. Why don't they just look at the church and just say, well, they're just a bunch of crackpots. Poor saps. They're just stupid. But there's a sense in which there is no such thing as an atheist, right? And even atheistic governments know in their heart of hearts that something is real with these believers. 
They're not really crackpots. There's something real, and it is a threat to my power. And so what we see here is that when persecution arises because of jealousy, when man seeks to enforce his laws that infringe upon God's law, God intervenes. And He intervenes in such a way that He puts His servants front and center again and says, now do the very thing that no one else would do. You know, if I wasn't a believer, I would have to look here at this chapter and I'd have to say, this has got to be true. Because no one in their right mind would go out and take this sort of risk again. Would endure this sort of persecution again unless they really really believed in the resurrection, right? And so there's this command to stand, to teach, to teach like their master, to preach the Word of God and watch this call for a response. If you'll notice when we preach here, often, if not most of the time, during the service, I will take a moment and I will preach the saving gospel. I will preach, meaning here is who God is, here is who man is as a result of his sin and how the wrath of God abides on him, but God being rich in his mercy with the great love with which he loved us sent his own son who died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, and all God calls us to do is to repent and believe. Why do I do that? Because we're calling people to bow the knee to Christ. Think how different this was than teaching from the rabbis. They're not making suggestions. They're not having discussions. They're calling people to repent and believe. They're preaching. They're taking the Word of God and they're calling for a transfer of allegiance. Why? Because they see themselves as stewards who've been commissioned with the truth, who are ambassadors for Christ, calling for people to turn from their sin and self-worship, quit being traitors, and become citizens of the kingdom. And you understand that in the book of Acts almost as clear as it can be. And as I was looking at this, I started thinking, is this going to be any different for us? Are we going to respond differently? When the government steps up and says we can no longer sing, which is not something that happens in China now, but it happens in California, in Washington, D.C., in Washington, in Oregon, or we can't meet or preach or worship, what will be our response? I'll promise you the Sanhedrin did not come out and say, we no longer believe in God. We no longer believe in His Word. Therefore, you need to quit teaching and preaching. Is that what they said? No. I'll promise you they told everyone else in Jerusalem that these people were dangerous to society. That this teaching was a health issue. If only a spiritual health issue. And so immediately I start making an application as I look at this and realize, I think about all the excuses I come up with in my mind as to why I might want to comply. And then I look, this is so clear. Amen? It's just clear. They're teaching and preaching the Word of God. They get arrested. An angel frees them, and what do they do? 
same thing again. Is this Russian roulette? One would think so. But let's progress. The council gathers the next day, unbeknownst to them that their uh, jailbirds are out of the cage, and they gather for their own kangaroo court. You can imagine what this is like. It's like our Congress. They, they all go in, and they're shaking hands with folks from across the aisle and chatting it up with their rivals because, hey, it's all politics anyway. And they're here because, frankly, they've got business they can all agree upon. These men have got to go. Bailiff, bring the prisoners to us, verse 22. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and reported back, saying, We we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed as to what would come of this. I'll tell you what I'd be thinking is these guys have escaped. They've headed to, to Galilee or maybe to Samaria. They're, they're, they're on the lamb. They're on the run. And they're going to go around and they're going to start talking more and more about this stuff. And, and it's going to be hard to catch them. And then about that time, a guy comes running in and says, verse 25, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. You think that's a coincidence there? They're standing and teaching. What did they get arrested for? Standing and teaching. They're doing the exact same thing. These guys got chutzpah, don't they? I don't know about you, but I find when someone shames me for what I believe or mocks me or starts to play the authority card hey, you're, you're crossing the line. My knees get weak. I get nervous. I, I still want to do the right thing. I still want to be bold. But I'm looking at the apostles here. I don't sense that at all, do you? They heard the directive from the angel. They immediately went back out. You get the feeling that they're like, all right, I get another chance to preach this sermon. I'm going to go louder. They're strong. They step right back into the ring and they stand and deliver. And I think I know why. Because they really believe what they believe. They really believe what they're saying. They really believe that the primary reason that they have not been martyred and gone to heaven yet is that they still have something to stay. They still have some work to do. They still get to be a part of building Christ's church. And so therefore, they don't see persecution and suffering as a roadblock. Watch this. They see suffering and persecution as speed bumps. You see the difference? And there's two ways you can treat speed bumps. You can be really, really worried about it. I guess you can go over them slowly if you want. I get the feeling they're driving four by fours and they're just putting the hammer down. I'm not going to let this stop me. This is all part and parcel of what we expected. 
Paul makes it clear to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life, especially when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. And so they really believe this, and they really believe that, that God is sovereign over their life, and so therefore, because they're still alive, they're supposed to still be doing the work. It hasn't changed. And so they press on. And they press on with such force that they're not even weakened. So I ask myself the question here. I ask you too. How many people did we talk to about Christ this week? How many people did we invite to church? And frankly, I had to put zero. And I was ashamed of myself. Oh, I had a busy week, and no, oh, I had some great ministry and had some great discipleship, but I wish it was on the forefront of my mind a little more. I wish by Wednesday when I realized that I hadn't shared the gospel with someone or I hadn't invited someone to church that I, I made it a point to say, hey, don't let another 24 hours go by before standing and delivering. That doesn't mean that we have to go and stand on a street corner and bark out the gospel at people who are not listening, but it does mean that we can have deliberate conversations about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, calling people to follow Him, and calling people to come and join us in worship, right? And we don't have anyone threatening to arrest us for this. And so I, I want you to join me in repenting for this, realizing that this sin has been forgiven, but we're called to repent and we're called to then show fruits in keeping with repentance. Look at our second point. Stand in obedience. The high priest points his bony finger at them and says in verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have Fill Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You see that picture there? How real is this in their minds? The Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, filled Jerusalem with your teaching, intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He refuses to even say Jesus' name. And you see that especially in chapter 4 where it talks about, I don't want you teaching in Jesus' name. They complain about him teaching in Jesus' name. Here he won't even use the name. They go from being disillusioned to being jealous to now there's guilt. Translation, you're making us look bad by putting this man's blood on our hand. Remember Pilate washing his hands in Matthew 27? I am innocent of this man's blood at the same time he is giving the order to have him executed. And do you remember, as he's doing that, do you remember what the crowd says? Let his blood be on us and our children. The Sanhedrin was out there. You throw a brick into a pack of dogs, which one yelps? The one who got hit. They're barking loud because they know that they are guilty. 
So they stand and deliver. They stand in obedience. Verse 27, watch what happens. They brought them before the council. The high priest questioned them, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's the title of this sermon, Obeying God Rather Than Men. Now that should sound familiar because it has become a favorite song of the apostles. Chapter 4, verse 19, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. You're a pastor. You preach the Word of God for, for a living. You tell us. Do we obey you or do we obey God? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then Peter breaks into preaching. After he says, we must obey God rather than men. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, now he puts his finger in his face, had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand. That's Hebrews right there, isn't it? as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, how in the world could these former fishermen, uh, tax collectors, uh, I mean, zealots, you you name it, how could they possibly go toe-to-toe with such powerful and educated men? That's a fair question, right? We we, we read this and we're a bit sanitized. Oh, these these are the apostles. This is St. Jude. This is St. Jude. Just like we opened with the illustration. These are regular guys. Regular, uneducated guys. And they're going toe to toe. I ask myself this question. And again, I think it's a mindset. I think it's a perception. I think they genuinely saw themselves as redeemed slaves with a new master. Oh, they realize Romans 13, that they're supposed to obey the governing authorities, except in cases where it contradicts Scripture. But this is one of those cases, clearly. And I think all they were having to ask themselves in order to have that sort of moxie, was to say, who's the boss? Who's the boss here? No, 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 I've got orders from the top. From my master directly. Yeah, I'll obey your stuff, but once it contradicts my mission, my mission possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, well then, nothing else makes a difference. They realize that no matter how respected these rabbis are, there is one that is right and there is one that is wrong. Their rabbi is right. Third point, suffer and rejoice. But when they heard this, meaning the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. And it's something here, I don't have my notes, but it's, it's, it's worth remembering. Do you remember a similar phrase 
Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching at Pentecost. The crowd hears him, and they were pierced to the heart. But what was their response like? When he says, according to the predetermined plan of God, you killed Jesus. It says they were pierced to the heart. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Here, they're also pierced. They're cut to the quick. It literally means to saw in two. We get to see the other side of the gospel cut. The gospel cuts both ways, doesn't it? To those, it is, it is a fragrance of eternal life. To the others, it is a stench of death. To one, it is the sweet savor of God himself sent his own son to die in my place, took my place on the cross, took my burden on his shoulders. The other one says, that's offensive. I want to kill you. Isn't that interesting? And these are supposedly religious people. Clearly, Peter hits a nerve here. They go from jealousy to guilt to anger. MacArthur makes an interesting comment regarding the emotional responses to the preaching of God's Word. He says, To convicting preaching, there are but three possible reactions. Violent hostility, tolerant indecision, or saving acceptance. Well, God has divinely intervened so far to release them. Sends them back out. Now He's going to divinely intervene to protect them. Verse 34 and following, there's a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel stands up and asks the bailiff to remove the prisoners for a moment so he can address the entire council. And he basically says, hey guys... Um, Let's be careful here. Let's throttle our emotions down. If you look at the last 40 years, we have seen that occasionally men rise up, stand against us, gather a following. But if it's unreal, if it's untrue, if they're not who they say they are, it disperses. They quickly fade away if they're not from God. But, he says, if this current movement, movement is from God... Not only will we not be able to defeat it, we could be found to fighting, fighting against God himself. Guys, realize what's at stake here. If this is nothing, it'll fade away. If it's something, we do not want to be on the wrong side of God. And let me tell you a bit about Gamaliel. He was probably the most respected teacher slash attorney of his time. They called him Rabban instead of Rabbi. It was an honorific title. He was the grandson of the famous Hillel and the mentor of the man who would become the Apostle Paul. He was well known from a quote in the Mishnah, which was the oral commentary, when Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. He was exalted. He was the top teacher. He was the Yoda of sort of the Sanhedrin, okay? And he says, let's just pause here for a moment. Now, do I think he believed the apostles? <laughs> Absolutely not. He didn't stand in the way of their flogging, did he? No. But God used him because today was not 
the day of the apostles' death. They had more work to do. Now keep that in mind. I think they would have been okay with it because they were empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they knew that if they were martyred that day, well, then their work was done. But think about the flip side of that. If they are then released, there should be wind in their sails that there is more work to do, right? Verse 40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the, what? Name of Jesus, and then release them. Wow. Think about that mindset a little bit more. They understood confidently that God is sovereign and God is good. They understood that though they lived in a world of evil, all they had to do was look around the room at the Sanhedrin that Satan was on a short leash. That nothing could befall them that had not first traveled in front of the throne of God and gotten approval. We see that from the book of Job, right? That they could not die a moment before their time, nor live a moment longer. That they had been left here as stewards of the gospel, making an appeal to people to follow Christ. That their lives were purchased out of the slave market of sin, and they were indeed now sons and daughters of the King. Their life was not their own, but they were now slaves of righteousness. What else were they going to do with their life, right? Why would they want to do anything else? Not only do they have eternity on the other side of death, they have the privilege of standing in the stead of Christ as His messengers, as His preachers. Somehow, and I think it's because of a couple things. One, clearly by the power of the Holy Spirit, clearly because they knew and studied their Bibles, and three, because they were in a theological community. They were with one another. They kept this on the forefront of their mind. They kept those biblical lenses in front of them, seeing things clearly instead of being discouraged, understanding that if they lived, God had a plan for them. I think we need this. I need this. I need to understand this kind of concept of, of while we live, my hand needs to be to the plow. That the moment I die, do I want to stand before God having tried to save my own skin or died swinging for the fences proclaiming the gospel? Can you imagine the shame and the embarrassment? You die, you stand before God. Wow, why are you here? I was running and hiding. I fumbled when I could have given the gospel. I recanted. Whatever. And these guys don't just have an admonishment. Don't just have a record in front of them. Don't just have being ostracized. They're flogged. You know what that flogging looks like? It's a whip with three leather strands. And they would be whipped on a bare back and those strands would come around their back and hit them in the chest and on the side. So not only are you lacerating the back, but just can you imagine the sensitivity around your ribs? Open wounds. And it was most likely the 39 lashes prescribed by the Jews, which was 40 less 1 because they knew 40 would kill a man. That's how bad this is. And they're walking out so they're bloody. 
Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would think about it that way. Considered worthy to suffer? I mean, maybe you could say, thankful we're still alive? Maybe? Maybe, I, I, I don't understand, but I'm sure God's in control. Here it's like rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame. And so they suffer and rejoice. They will not submit to the Sanhedrin's direction, but they will submit to their licks. And they take it and rejoice. Not because of the physical pain. That would be sadistic. They rejoice because they're worthy to suffer shame. The picture here is dishonor. It's losing their reputation. It's losing credibility. You ever thought about what that means? Losing all credibility, losing all of your reputation? You know, most places, that's, that's to lose everything, even the ability to make a living. But the key here is to lose everything also means they're gaining Christ, doesn't it? They take the hits and they keep on advancing. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I started thinking practically about what, what this looks like. This, how do, you, how do you plow forward? Doing what God has called you to do. Clear when I cannot obey man and I need to obey God. Taking, taking the licks and moving forward. Taking the beating and somehow still not letting it crush you. Some of you are old enough to remember. We were talking about it last week with Mark Sadley. The rumble in the jungle. Remember that? Ali and Foreman. They scheduled a big fight in uh, Zaire. Now it's the Congo. Foreman was the heavyweight champion. Ali was the challenger. Foreman was expected to win. He's bigger, stronger. If I remember correctly, he had a longer reach. And yet... Ali was creative. Do you know how he won? Well, first of all, he danced around a lot. But you can only dance around so long. So he would jab, he would strike where he could, but Foreman was strong. And so he introduced the rope-a-dope. Okay? And the rope-a-dope was, when I couldn't get away, when I can't run, when I got to take the hits, I would assume a stance like this against the ropes, and I would take the hits. And of course, Foreman would expend all his energy trying to knock Ali down. And he just took it, took it, took it. And then when Foreman would get tired, he'd jab, he'd pop, he'd bob, he'd weave. And he wore Foreman out and he won that fight. He wore Foreman out, taking the hits and then looking for the opportunity to advance. What are these guys doing here? They're taking their hits, 
And then they're looking for the opportunity to advance. They're taking their hits, and then they're outstanding and preaching again. They're taking their licks, and then they're moving forward. We see the same thing with Paul, don't we? He gets run out of a town, he goes to the next one. Starts in the synagogue, gets run out. Goes to the Gentiles, gets run out. Gets run out of that town, goes to the next town. Ali didn't invent rope-a-dope. The apostles did. How do we know? Look at verse 42. Watch how it ends. And every day in the temple and from house to house, I'm ramping it up, they're saying. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. My first reaction is to say, these are some tough dudes. No, these are not some tough dudes. These are some weak guys who are made strong by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means that every single one of us here not only can do the same thing, but by the power of Christ will do the same thing. Let me leave you with just a little practical because it seems so counterintuitive, standing and teaching, obeying against all odds. I mean, when facing persecution, they stand and teach the Word of God. When facing persecution, they stand and swear allegiance to God. When facing persecution, they submit and rejoice to God. How do we do this? Christ is our model. Christ is our model. Christ proclaims the Word of God. In fact, when He's tempted or when He is persecuted, He quotes Scripture, doesn't He? Isn't that interesting? He quotes Scripture. Even when he, he's asked by Pilate, are you a king? He says, yes, I am. He does not back away. And then he says, and you don't have authority over me. This is coming from God. And he takes a beating for it. And somehow God uses that beating, which was the cross, to advance his kingdom. So we have to start with the right attitude, the right mindset. We have to realize that when we encounter persecution, it wasn't that God was asleep at the wheel. It wasn't that we did something wrong. We can't go coulda, woulda, shoulda. We have to see it as, uh-oh, this is one of those speed bumps that looks like it'll slow us down, but in fact is going to launch us further in the advancement of God's kingdom. That's the picture. You have to realize that short of Him removing us, if we're here and if we're suffering, it's because he's going to advance his kingdom through persecution. Secondly, it's about attitude. Because I can preach this all day long and we can get excited about it, but when it happens, we have a tendency to buckle at the knees, right? We have a tendency to get depressed. So let's talk about that. Feeling depressed, fighting against the persecution that will come when we respond that way, we have to realize what we're doing. We are protesting pain. Tell me if you haven't said this. This is, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what I signed up for. Certainly this is not God's plan. This is not what I would call ministerial success. Or my favorite, this isn't fair. And yet all of those are an assault on God's sovereignty or His goodness. And so we've got we to throttle back and say, Lord, I'm not going to protest the pain, 
but I'm going to believe what the Word of God says, that you are sovereign and you are good. And that if I'm going through this persecution, it is this divinely ordained event. Even if it's sinful, He has allowed it, and the kingdom will advance. And you are using me to somehow advance this kingdom. And when we lay our own reputation at the foot of the cross and trade it for His reputation, it gives us the ability to go through it. And not only to go through it, but to watch His kingdom advance. Can I leave you with Christ's own words? Matthew 5. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so, Father, we are thankful for this text, and yet we feel weak. We do not feel that we could rise to the challenge. And there's truth in that, Lord, because in and of ourselves we cannot. But Lord, as a congregation, we open our hearts, we give you our hands, and we ask that you will do in us and through us by the power of your Spirit what we cannot do. And that we would choose to obey God rather than men. And that we would boldly proclaim the Word of God by standing and teaching, and standing and delivering. And there will be times where we need to submit and take our licks, but we do not have to submit to that which is contrary to Your Word. Help us to realize that as ambassadors, as long as we live, there is more work for us to do. May we not protest pain, but may we rejoice having been worthy to suffer for the name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.